0: Hi everyone, welcome back to episode 27 of the Interlude Podcast. Today is going to be something a little bit different. I am going to be talking about vitamins and supplements and how they play a role both in patients who have had cancer and in the general population, what you should be taking, what you need to get through food versus through supplements, and so much more. I've got a bunch of questions that everyone sent in, and I will try to get to as many of them as I can. As a reminder, all of the information discussed today is not meant to be used as medical advice. It is general, evidence-based guidelines, and all specific medical questions should be directed to your healthcare team. So, with that said, let's go ahead and get started. So, I'm a big proponent of getting as much of what you need for your body through your food, through your diet. Rather than taking a lot of supplements, I'm a big fan of saying, what can I really get in my diet? How can I optimize the foods that I'm eating on a daily basis to make sure that I'm getting what I need? With that said, there are certain supplements that we do need to take to optimize our health so when you think about food and what you're eating the first kind of helpful way to do it is to break down what you're eating into your macronutrients so there's certainly a lot of diets that count macros and we're not really talking about that what we're talking more about is just the components of your diet and so those are macronutrients of carbohydrates fats protein, and fiber. And your diet really needs to be balanced to make sure that you're making up those recommendations. So for example, the United States dietary guidelines recommend that carbohydrates should make up about 45 to 65% of your total caloric intake. Protein should be about 10 to 35%. And fat should be about 25. To 35% of total caloric intake. And the caveat with this is that it really should be healthy fats. So we're not talking about sugar laden donuts and things like that. Healthy fats, nuts, olive oil, avocado, those are going to be really important and really good in your diet. And then the recommended amount for dietary fiber is 14 grams per 1,000 calories. And that really is going to translate to about 25 mm-hmm. grams, 36 grams per day. And increased fiber intake is really associated with many health benefits. It decreases your risk of coronary heart disease, colorectal cancer, stroke, type 2 diabetes. So those are all of your macronutrients. So now we turn to micronutrients. So micronutrients are nutrients that are needed in very small amounts and they are also going to include several minerals such as sodium and calcium and vitamins. So I'd like to kind of talk all about all of these in a little bit. So sodium, the recommended sodium intake for the population is less than 2,300 milligrams per day. So that may seem like a lot to you, but there is hidden salt in anything that we eat. I was at the grocery store and I saw a really healthy appearing lunch. It was 300 calories. It was a ton of vegetables. I mean, it looked great and it was pre-made. This is fantastic. Turned it over. I looked at the salt content and it had 800 milligrams of sodium in a tiny container there's hidden salt wherever you go and you really have to do your due diligence and making sure that you are reading your labels. A lot of people come to me and say, you know, I just feel bloated. I feel off. I don't feel like myself. And he say, well, do you eat with salt? And people aren't putting salt on their food, but it's the hidden salt that they are missing out on. So really make sure that You are looking at what you're eating because reduction in salt intake is associated with a decreased risk of cardiovascular events, including death. We also know that a high dietary intake of salt is going to increase your risk for high blood pressure and cardiovascular disease. So, all really important points. Next is calcium and vitamin D. And this is pretty controversial in some cases. So, here's the bottom line. The recommended calcium intake for a woman is 1200 milligrams for postmenopausal women and thousand milligrams for anyone else. And just to put that into perspective, a Greek yogurt will have about 300 milligrams of calcium. It can be hard to get the 1200 milligrams in your diet. We certainly know that dairy sources are very high in calcium, cheese, yogurt, milk but a lot of people don't eat dairy or limit their dairy. And so then you may find yourself saying, well, how do I get the calcium that I need in my diet? So a lot of non-dairy milks, such as almond milk, are fortified with calcium nowadays. And so you can really get a good amount just through that. Other non-dairy sources of calcium include seeds. So for example, Chia seeds, those are going to be great, and they're also rich in omega-3 fatty acids, so they're really helpful. You can make a chia pudding, which is going to be a healthy, great breakfast. Uh, Other things are going to be sardines and canned salmon, which have a lot of calcium in it. So a can of sardines has 35% of the calcium that you need. Beans and lentils, those are also high in fiber, in protein, lots of iron, zinc, folate, magnesium, potassium. So those are really great, kind of a pack of good punch for just a lot of things. Almonds, whey protein, and then some leafy greens. And things like spinach and kale will do have a fair amount of calcium in it. But what's important to keep in mind is that some varieties of Your leafy greens are high in a substance called oxalates, and that binds to calcium, which makes it unavailable or makes some of it unavailable to the body. So that's an important point. Additionally, while spinach has a fair amount of calcium, you'd have to eat a lot of spinach to get your calcium in. So what I recommend is really doing a food diary and seeing how much calcium you get on a regular basis. And you may say, well, why do I need to do that? If I don't eat calcium, can't I just take a multivitamin? Or can't I just take an extra calcium supplement? Well, you can, but it's not that simple. The reason is there is some data that suggests that taking calcium supplements may increase your risk for heart disease. This is not definitively proven. There is a lot of ongoing research about it, and we truly don't know. What I recommend is you want to get the calcium that you can through your diet. If you can't, then you should take the supplement because getting enough calcium is really important for your bones. So if you're not getting enough and you're not taking the supplement because you're afraid of the risk for heart disease, you're really going to hurt your bones in the process, which is also not good. The other thing I didn't mention is there's, again, like the almond milk, there are a lot of other foods that are fortified with calcium, and so it's just really important to keep that in mind when you're doing your grocery shopping. Along with calcium, you have vitamin D. So this is a very hot topic. Everyone wants their vitamin D checked, and with good reason, because we're all low in vitamin D. We don't get enough sunlight, and you really can't get that much vitamin D through your food. So a lot of us do need to be on supplements. Vitamin D is actually not a vitamin. It used to be thought that way, but it's actually considered a pro hormone. What's interesting about it is that it can be synthesized in the skin through exposure to sunlight. So that's a little bit different than some other pro hormones. Who should get tested for vitamin D? So it seems like everyone is getting tested for vitamin D, but the current evidence says that we actually don't know enough to say whether we should screen asymptomatic individuals you know most experts will say that adults at normal risk don't need testing and realistically most people are taking a multivitamin that contains D in it so even if you're low you are getting enough vitamin D but the data is not hundred percent there The guidelines also suggest that it is appropriate to screen people who are at high risk for vitamin D deficiency. So for example, anyone who is obese, hospitalized, taking medications that accelerate vitamin D metabolism, people who have limited sun exposure, and in the winter that can be pretty much anyone, osteoporosis, malabsorption, and those who are dark-skinned. So that's going to be a good amount of people. So if you have not gotten your vitamin D checked and you do fall into that high-risk category, that's an important point that I would recommend you talk to your doctor about. What does it actually mean to be low in vitamin D? What are the clinical manifestations of a low vitamin D level? A low vitamin D level is defined on some labs as less than 20 and in some labs as less than 30. Realistically, people who have mild deficiency in that 15 to 30 range are going to be asymptomatic. So you may have a level of 20 or 21. You won't feel that. So a lot of times people will say, I have pain, I'm uncomfortable. That's probably not from vitamin D level in that range. When you have prolonged or severe vitamin D deficiency, so for example, that's going to be a level typically less than 12 that can contribute to osteoporosis it can result in low calcium levels which can lead to bone demineralization and something called osteomalacia which means softening of the bones and ultimately a low vitamin d level will manifest itself in bone pain tenderness muscle weakness fractures, difficulty walking, but it is rare to have a level that low that is going to make people symptomatic, but it does happen. A question that I get asked a lot is, well, my vitamin D level is normal. Do I need extra vitamin D? And you don't. So if you have a normal level, you're not at high risk, you know, extra vitamin D does not have any benefit so if your level is 30 you don't need it to be 50 or 60 or 90 you do not you are fine there have been a number of studies that say that routine supplementation of vitamin d does not prolong life decrease the incidence of cancer diabetes cardiovascular disease or decrease fracture rates so more is not better The recommended dietary allowance for vitamin D is about 600 to 800 international units per day. And this is especially for older people and for those who don't have exposure to sun all year round. And if you don't get that in your food, then you should take a supplement. But like I said, most multivitamins will have that. So if your vitamin D level is normal, you're fine. On the flip side, If your vitamin D level is low, what supplementation do you need? First thing is you have vitamin D3 and you have vitamin D2. Which one is better? So vitamin D2 tends to be a more of a plant-based vitamin D, but vitamin D3 increases your levels more efficiently than D2. So I do tend to recommend the D3 one. There are no guidelines that are very clear about what is the best way to replete vitamin D. A common practice does tend to be vitamin D3 or D2, 50,000 units weekly for 48 weeks and then a maintenance dose afterwards. But everyone does it differently. Your doctor may tell you to take 5,000 units a day. That's okay. There's no rule that you need to follow and there's no clear set minimum or optimal level of vitamin D and that ranges anywhere from 20 to 40, again, depending on the lab, depending on your doctor. So, you know, my take-home point really is Don't stress too much about vitamin D. If you're low, take a supplement if you're not getting it through your food or sunlight. But don't overdo it and don't aim too high because that doesn't have any real benefits. Let's move on to iron. So in the polls that I did on Instagram, so many of you told me that you have been at one point in your life diagnosed with iron deficiency. And this is really a major public health goal, and it is a huge aspect of care for many adults. There are different patient populations that can be iron deficient. So, for example, a lot of toddlers or infants who are breastfed or who drink a lot of cow's milk tend to become iron deficient. Menstruating women, pregnant women, uh, that's a really big part of evaluation. As well as in older adults, we do tend to see a lot of GI blood loss or other GI etiologies for their iron deficiency. The way that I like to approach it is three ways. So one, why are you iron deficient? How are you going to fix that underlying problem? And three, how do you get more iron in, into you? Whether that be with oral iron, intravenous iron, or with food. So the first thing is, why is someone iron deficient? And we can have a whole other conversation about it, but you really want to evaluate whether they are losing blood, whether they have reduced iron absorption, for example, through celiac disease or bariatric surgery, whether they're pregnant, a whole host of factors. You would treat the underlying condition. So if someone is not absorbing because of celiac disease, you would eliminate gluten from the diet. You know, there's all these things that you would do. If if a toddler who's drinking a lot of cow's milk is iron deficient, you're going to try to optimize their diet. Normal people who don't have iron deficiency should be making sure they are getting the recommended dietary allowance of iron in their body. Just to give you an idea, for women under the age of 50, That is 18 milligrams of iron per day, and it actually drops to 8 milligrams per day over 50 because they're not menstruating anymore and they're not losing iron. Too much iron is not good for you, so you have to keep that in mind. So, what foods are going to be high in iron? Because I think that's a really important point. Those are dietary changes you can make every single day to increase the dietary iron that you consume. In our Instagram quiz, most of you pick spinach as being the highest amount of iron, and while spinach has a good amount of iron, it's actually not as high as canned white beans. So a lot of people say, I'm eating, I'm eating a lot of iron. Why, why are my levels not coming up? Well, because what we perceive, right? we know spinach has a lot, it's not always the case. So here are some good sources of iron, shellfish, spinach, liver, and other organ meats. Now, for the, we do wanna to try to limit our red meat content, so we may wanna to switch to more plant-based sources of iron, but those are high-containing sources. Legumes, pumpkin seeds, actually, quinoa, turkey, broccoli, tofu, and dark chocolate, believe it or not. One ounce of dark chocolate has nearly 20% of your recommended dietary intake of iron, so that's a little benefit there. A lot of cereals and grains will be fortified with iron. But here's the deal. People tend to eat their cereals with milk. And milk is going to actually, or any calcium, is going to decrease your iron absorption. So if you think about a toddler, for example, who's drinking a lot of milk and is found to be iron deficient, his mom will buy him or dad will buy him fortified Cheerios and say, great, there's iron in here, this isn't great. And the toddler eats them with milk. You're essentially decreasing the absorption of that fortified iron. So that's helpful to keep in mind. Vitamin C actually enhances your absorption. So something like orange juice would be great for that. So again, little nuances, but can play a role in the iron. Now, supplements. There's oral iron, there's IV iron. Some people don't tolerate the oral iron because it can cause constipation, a lot of GI upset. So then IV iron becomes a possibility. That's a topic you would have with your hematologist or whoever is treating you for iron deficiency anemia. Moving on to the B vitamins. Most common ones are B2, which is known as riboflavin, B6, which is known as pyridoxine, and B12 or cobalamin. So B2 is actually found in many commonly consumed foods, and so overt B2 deficiency is pretty rare, we just don't really see that that often. B6 is gonna be found in bananas, nuts, um, many common vegetables such as potatoes, green beans, cauliflower, carrots. There has been some hypotheses that B6 and B6 supplementation may be involved in cancer risk reduction. That really hasn't panned out in large studies. And so it's kind of controversial right now as to what we should be doing and the recommendations for B6. B12, you know, this is the one that really we talk a lot about, especially for people who are vegans and who are not getting a lot of B12 through their diet, which is typically found in things like liver, milk, fish, meat. For people who are very low in B12, they can have anemia, and they can have neurologic symptoms. And Actually, in older people, even a subtle B12 deficiency can be associated with decreased cognitive function and dementia. With that said, taking B12 supplements does not prevent dementia, so that's an important point there. So for people who are at increased risk, vegans, people with alcoholism, people who have, you know, little dietary variation or poor quality diets, sometimes that can be people living in poverty, or older adults, then testing those people may be a good idea. Typically, vitamin B12 supplementation is really well tolerated without any significant adverse effect. There's also no great data that supplemental B12 is beneficial in healthy people who eat a balanced diet. So a lot of times people say, what other supplements can I take? I'm going to add in B-complex. And honestly, if you eat a balanced diet, you probably don't, and you're not, you don't fall into one of those high risk groups. You probably don't need anything extra with that B-complex. One of the food products that I really like, actually, and I recommend to a lot of patients is nutritional yeast. So it's a species of yeast, and it's the same type of yeast that's used to bake bread and brew beer, but this yeast is grown specifically to be used as a food product. So the yeast cells are killed during manufacturing, they're not alive in the final product, and it's used in cooking, and it has a very cheesy, nutty, or savory flavor. What's great about it is that it's really high in B vitamins. So one tablespoon of nutritional yeast will have anywhere from 30 to 180% of your recommended dietary intake for B vitamins. It can also be fortified, making it rich in thiamine, riboflavin, niacin, vitamin B6, vitamin B12. So that's a great, great source. of, And you don't have to take a supplement for that. And I put it on top of my stir fry or in cooking and you really, it actually adds a nice little flavor to it. So before we get to the q and I do want to touch on two more things, soy and turmeric. So there is a lot of controversy about soy. People will say, well, soy is not safe. It's got estrogens. You can't take it if you have breast cancer. And here is the bottom line. So soy does contain a high concentration of isoflavones, which are a type of plant estrogen or also known as phytoestrogen. And because most breast cancers are driven by estrogen, there has always been this concern that if you have these soy products, it can increase cancer risk. Then there's data that says soy consumption is safe and it actually may reduce breast cancer risk. So hey, what is it? What should you be doing? So what's interesting is that isoflavones have actually also been shown to have anti-estrogen properties. They have been shown to suppress breast cancer cell growth and inhibit tumor growth. So it, it actually is safe. A lot of studies that are out there do focus on the Asian population because Asian women tend to consume a lot of soy products. And so sometimes you can't extrapolate that data entirely, but... We think that in the quantity that Americans eat soy in, it is safe and it is fine. What I will say is that there's a lot of processed soy foods. And just because I told you soy soy is okay, it doesn't mean that you're going to run out and buy the processed soy foods. So whole soy foods are fine, edamame, miso, tofu, soy milk, all great. But you've got like soy nuggets, that's just all Process stuff. So I would stay away from that. Now, there are also soy supplements, which we don't recommend because we don't have safety data on that. There are two recent studies that did show that soy intake may help women who who are on breast cancer treatment, who have menopausal symptoms and fatigue, and as well as may reduce the risk of fractures from osteoporosis. So that's involving data. I think everything in moderation, it's okay. You do not have to give up your edamame or miso soup. Um, you know, It's probably perfectly safe. And then lastly, what about turmeric? So is it a fad or is it the real deal? So for those who don't know, turmeric is a plant related to ginger. It is grown in India, parts of Asia and Central America. So it's historically used in Ayurvedic medicine for conditions such as breathing problems, rheumatism, pain, and fatigue. And it's kind of evolved and it almost seems like everyone's doing it for inflammation, arthritis, cancer. It's a common spice. It is a major ingredient in curry powder. And the data to support its use is really not the strongest. Uh, it may have some benefits in cardiovascular health, in cancer, and reduction in inflammation, but high doses or long-term use may actually cause some GI issues and may interact with some medications used for blood clotting. So it's safe when it's used in food, but what about a supplement? It's hard to say. You know, we just don't know. So I really recommend keeping it in your food, but maybe staying away from a supplement unless you talk with your doctor about what you should do. So let's take a pause right here and let's, sum up what we've talked about. We talked about micro, macronutrients in the diet. We talked about salt, sodium. We talked about calcium and vitamin D. We talked about iron, the B vitamins, soy, and turmeric. So that is a lot of information that I covered. The bottom, bottom line is try to get as much as you can through your diet. You may need a supplement, that's okay. A lot of people will take a multivitamin that kind of covers everything, so they don't have to take a lot of different things. Um, But it's important to look at the quantity that is in that multivitamin and making sure that you're actually getting what you need. So for example, some multivitamins don't have calcium. And if you're really needing that calcium, then you're not getting what you need in that multivitamin. There are a lot of affordable multivitamins and there are a lot of really expensive multivitamins and you will spend a fortune on something that you probably don't need. There's no need to go buy the $50 bottle that's going to last you for 30 days. Look at the ingredients. A lot of this stuff is the same. Vitamin D is vitamin D, whether it's in a fancy bottle or not. So just be mindful. Uh, don't fall for the latest fad that's out there. So now I'd like to, we're going to switch gears and I'm going to do a Q&A based on all the questions that I got and I'll try to get to as many as I can. So the first question is vitamin C and cancer. This is a hot topic. You might have seen a lot about IV vitamin C, vitamin C infusions. And look guys, the bottom line is that there have been numerous large scale Randomized clinical trials, you know, the gold standard in clinical trial research, showing that there is no reduction in cancer in patients who are given vitamin C supplementation. So let me give you one example of a study: seventy-six hundred women who were cancer-free were given five hundred milligrams of vitamin C daily, and after a nearly ten-year follow-up, there was no incidence. On the development of cancer. That's pretty significant. There are other studies, but the point is that there's no evidence to show that vitamin C affects cancer risk in any way. Now, there are people who believe and believe in the power of IV vitamin C, and I'm going to leave that to them, but I will tell you based on the data, there is no reduction in cancer risk at this time. Next question. What is better, vitamins that dissolve, like under the tongue, or pill forms? Honestly, whatever helps you take medication. And that really goes for any medication. So, you know, pills that dissolve work faster. And what I do recommend is reading the label about how it should be taken. You know, if the label says, do not crush it and take with food, then don't crush it and take it with food you know, they, those labels are there for a reason. Those are the, allowed, designed to tell you what is the maximum and the best way that the drug is going to be absorbed. So do and, and take a look at the labels. But really, it's what helps you take the medication is the best form. up. Next question is, you know, do vitamins and cancer, are, are they working, right? So you read about all these people who are not going through chemotherapy and who've gone, you know, the way of IV vitamins and infusions and these fancy supplements and look, there is no magic. There is nothing that just magically gets rid of cancer. It there, it just isn't. That is not the biology of the disease. And I'm not going to get a, you know, there's no magic cure that we are hiding from the world. The bottom line is that cancer needs to be treated with appropriate medications, and that is chemotherapy, targeted therapy, hormonal therapy, immunotherapy, and honest surgery, radiation, and so forth. With that said, I think that there is a role for a holistic supplementation of that. And there are some alternative medicines that do have a good role. And that's something that you would talk to your doctor about, about how they fit it. That lends itself to the next question. Why do oncologists say you cannot take vitamins during chemotherapy? And I get it. This seems counterintuitive. You come to me for a consultation and I am telling you that chemotherapy is going to affect your appetite. Chemotherapy is going to make you have a loss of taste. You're not going to maybe eat the, the healthiest foods and so it's natural to want to take that vitamin. But here is why we do not recommend vitamins during chemotherapy. You may also be thinking, if chemotherapy weakens my immune system, shouldn't taking extra supplements and vitamins help counteract that. But here's why. So the deal is that antioxidants from vitamins, one of the things that they do is they quench reactive oxygen species and these are free radicals that can result in some cancers but the other thing that they do they can destroy the reactive oxygen species that are created by cancer treatments and those are what are needed to kill the cancer cells and we don't know always the combination of which vitamins and which antioxidants and which chemotherapy will interact So it's safer not to allow or not to to recommend that people do not take those supplements and vitamins during chemotherapy, because if you do have an interaction between an antioxidant and a reactive oxygen species, you you may end up with a dose reduction because of this interaction. And that's something that you are trying to minimize if at all possible that also goes for multivitamins so for example things like vitamin a b6 c and e they are antioxidants so a lot of your multivitamins will have them during you know we'll have those as part of their components and additionally a lot of multivitamins will have upwards of two thousand or more of the daily value of some ingredients So you really run the risk of of affecting the efficacy of the chemo. Another question that comes up a lot is herbal medicines. And the bottom line is that a lot of those also have antioxidant activity. And so, you know, I think it's just safer to minimize that interaction when at all possible because you really don't want to decrease the efficacy of the chemo if it can be avoided. Now, there are a lot of foods. That are high in antioxidants. So, that can be an issue because if I just told you that food, you know, supplements and vitamins high in antioxidants can decrease the efficacy of the chemo, what about foods? And those are going to be things, you know, like things like berries, beet, spinach. Those are really high in antioxidants. And realistically speaking, a normal, varied diet will not pose a problem. So, I am all for you getting your antioxidants through your food. With that said, we probably wouldn't recommend for you to have a strawberry or blueberry only diet. So you don't really want to concentrate those antioxidants. Um, so that's something to keep in mind as well. When talking about fruit, one question that I got was the healing properties of the fruit, sour sap or pow pow, P-A-P-P-A-W-P-A-W. So what this is, is a long prickly fruit and it comes from the graviola tree, which is an evergreen that is native to Mexico, the Caribbean, Central and South America. It's also known as custard apple and guanabana. There is no data for this. There's no data that this affects cancer treatment in any way and as such, we would not recommend it as part of any cancer treatment. Next question, what adaptogens should I take? So you might be thinking, well, what are adaptogens? So adaptogens are non-toxic plants that really are marketed as helping the body resist stressors of all kinds. So whether those stressors are physical, they're chemical, they're biological, think of them as plants designed to help your body handle stress. So there's, they're really herbs and roots and they have been used for centuries in Chinese and Ayurvedic. Healing traditions, but they're kind of making a comeback or a renaissance right now. And so they're very popular, and there's a lot of different ones. So, for example, um, there's not a lot of data about it, but proponents of adaptogens kind of view it as you are telling your body or you're helping your body learn how to handle stress better. So, there are things like ashwagandha and Asian ginseng, which is recommended. Um, by proponents of these to soothe long-term stresses, sources of stress or the hormone imbalances that may result for it. There are adaptogens for acute stress and anxiety to boost your immune health, such as ginseng. So there's a lot of different ones. They can come in teas. You can combine tinctures with water, You can buy a premixed powder to put in your smoothie. And I think from my perspective, really, there's not a lot of data about it. And so again, if you're on chemotherapy, you're on treatment, we would view these like a supplement. And we would not recommend them during treatment, but you would discuss that with your doctor as well. The next question is on fish oil. What's a really interesting and very little known fact is that studies initially found that Greenland Eskimos who had consumed a large amount of seafood had very very low rates of heart disease and so then they did a lot of studies and they looked at seafood consumption and what they found was this um, long chain N3 polyunsaturated fatty acids in fish oil and that's how it became popular. And what we do know is that fish oil may affect cognitive decline, dementia, heart disease, depression, asthma, and several other inflammatory disorders. So it is an option. The current guidelines are that most adults you know, be counseled to consume at least one to two servings per week of oily fish. Examples of oily fish would be salmon or sardines. For people who can't consume that much oily fish, it is a good idea to take a daily fish oil supplement, which comes out to about one gram per day in the supplement. So that's something to kind of look at when you're deciding which vitamins and supplements you are going to take. And I would talk to your doctor about whether it is right for you. From a breast cancer perspective, there is a study looking at women who are on aromatase inhibitors, so ariminax, letrozole, exemestane, and are having joint pains. Supplementing with fish oil or omega-3 fatty acids actually helped decrease some of their joint aches and pains. So, And that goes, again, along with the potential effect on inflammation. So there's definitely a lot of benefits to fish oil. Next question has to do with flaxseed. So flaxseed is a great supplement to think about. It has, the seeds are high in fiber. They're actually high in omega-3 fatty acids. So maybe you're not doing your fish oil supplements, but you're taking flaxseed. It's been been used to improve digestive health and relieve constipation. Uh, There is some thought that it may lower cholesterol, which could reduce your risk of heart disease. So you could buy it whole or ground a lot of nutrition experts will recommend ground over whole flaxseed because it, the ground form is easier to digest and the whole form can actually pass through your intestine undigested and you may lose some of the benefits. And then you can put, you know, you can grind it up, you can put it into your cereal, into your yogurt, into your smoothie. So really easy to do, but because it's got a lot of fiber you do want to make sure you're taking it with a lot of water or other fluids. Next question, essential oils. So essential oils are volatile liquid substances that are really extracted from aromatic plant material. And what happens is the binding of chemical components in the essential oil to receptors in your olfactory bulb will impact the brain's emotional center. So for example, if you apply essential oils to your skin, you may actually end up with antibacterial, anti-inflammatory, and analgesic effects. You know, for the most part, we do think that the essential oils are safe, but they are not studied by the FDA. They can, however, help with common chemotherapy-related symptoms, so anxiety, sleep, mood, constipation, pain, nausea, vomiting, and so forth. The one thing that's important to remember is that, you know, you, these are topical oils and some people will inhale them. Using a diffuser is nice. Some people put them in their bath. A lot of different options in terms of eating the essential oils. That's a little bit more controversial. So that's something, again, if you're on treatment, you'd want to discuss with your doctor. The, additionally, the one caveat I'll have to that. Is that repeated exposure to lavender and tea tree oil? And probably if you are ingesting it, we think it's not recommended for hormone receptor positive breast cancer because they do have some estrogenic effects. But you'd really be have having to take a lot of it. And again, the data on this is very, very weak. So my take on it during treatment essential oils are fine, but you really shouldn't be ingesting them, especially during chemotherapy. And these, we're going to talk also about the oils that are high in antioxidants. Remember, antioxidants, we want to avoid those supplements during chemo. So oils high in antioxidants are lavender, clove, and eucalyptus. So something to keep in mind. My personal favorite is just getting a eucalyptus plant, putting it in your shower, and just inhaling that. And that's really calming, very nice, especially in the cold winter months. It feels like a spa in your shower every day. A couple of other questions that I got that I won't answer individually just because we are running out of time, but how can I increase my absorption or do I need to take anything to increase my absorption of certain vitamins? What happens if I have too much vitamin C? What happens if I have too much vitamin D? And I think the bottom line is iron, you know, the way that we, what well, the foods that we combine with the iron containing foods like the orange juice or the milk that affects absorption, but things like vitamin D, um a, That shouldn't be a problem. Again, a lot of it depends on why your vitamin B12 or B6, you know, deficient in the first place. Too much of a vitamin is not a good thing. We know, and as I talked about earlier in the episode, too much vitamin D does not have any health benefits, but it can be harmful. You want to shoot for everything in moderation. So my three take-home points for you after listening to this whole episode are eat a balanced diet. If you are not getting something from that diet that is when you're going to add in the vitamins and the supplements number two really know what you're putting in your body the latest fad the latest hot vitamin may not be right for you read the labels see what the ingredients are see if that makes sense for you to take and the third talk to your doctor there are so many supplements herbs plants i mean there's a ton of stuff out there and it may be right for you and it may not be and it may not be right for you at a particular time be honest communicate with your doctor when we are saying yes you can take this or no you can't take this it's because there's data and there's evidence to support our claims but ask about that. Don't be satisfied with why, why, no, you can't take it. Ask why. Understanding the explanation, having that communication will really make it clear as to why these are, this is the right path for you. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. I know it was a little bit different this time, but there's a lot that needs to be discussed about this topic and I promise we will be back in the next two weeks with more cancer stories. If you have any other questions, please feel free to contact me on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook, and My handle on all of those is Dr. Jeklinski. You can also email me at interludecancerstories at gmail.com. Please feel free to share this episode widely. I think there's a lot of great information on here about what we should all be doing to eat a balanced diet and to be balanced with all of our vitamins and supplements in our body. Have a great Friday, and I will see all of you next week.